With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 64th episode of my show. I like to use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also try to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to help you to better protect your privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Podtoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in. My Voice America show producer just told me this morning that I was approaching the 80,000 listeners mark worldwide, which You know, that's really thrilling to hear. So thank you all for tuning in. I'm so happy to know that you're tuning in and find my show to be of value and interest. If you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please also get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy, let me know that as well. As I mentioned before, um, I've been involved in a couple of really interesting expert witness projects uh, here in the past year. And I love doing those. I love the detail that is involved with them. So keep me in mind if you ever have such a need. And also keep your feedback and questions coming in. I welcome them all and I'm always so happy to receive them. So thanks to all of you for sending the feedback. It really does give me good ideas for upcoming shows. Now, I want to give you a reminder that the NIST Privacy Framework Development is an active project that's lasting throughout 2019 this year. So, we want to get as much feedback from as many different industries, uh, from the general public, from different countries and different perspectives. We want to get as many of those as possible. So please go to nist.gov forward slash privacy hyphen framework. And there you'll see more information. You'll also see a way to provide feedback on many different documents and draft um, items that we have here. The next NIST privacy framework workshop is next week on May 13 and 14 in Atlanta, Georgia at Georgia Tech. And you can sign up for the workshop 
at the privacy hyphen framework section of the NIST.gov site also. My May privacy professor tips message was published on April 30th. Now you can sign up for my free monthly tips messages by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. I've been providing my tips for free since 2007, and I've been doing this in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues. And also, I wanted to provide a free awareness publication that organizations can use to send to their employees as part of their information security and privacy education programs. And also, this would help support their due diligence requirements. Now, this year, along with all the tips and news that I've been putting within them, I'm highlighting some things that I'm finding in the news that are being done that are privacy-friendly or privacy-enhancing actions And I'm highlighting the actions and free tools of five different entities in the May tips. Um, If you've seen some news covering privacy protection actions or free tools that you thought were pretty uh, pretty great, just let me know. And I love hearing about all those who are being proactive in protecting privacy. So to my tip for the week, this is related to something I included within my May tips. And as well, it is also something that we're going to talk about uh, as part of the show discussion today. So one of my business friends forwarded a message to me just uh, last week. And basically, my friend said, hey, Rebecca, FYI, it looks like Somebody is trying to impersonate you. Please see the email below that my colleague received. So I included in my May tips a screenshot of that message. And of course, I removed the personal data of the others from that that message. But the message was basically asking the recipient to take an action that could have led to a data breach. And yes, indeed, as the email showed, the person posing as me was not using my actual email address. Now, that is a huge red flag that this was a phishing message. Now, my business friend caught this spoofed email address tactic right away, and they noticed that red flag, and so they forwarded it on. This is something I want all my listeners to keep in mind, that anyone can associate any name to an email address that they use to send a message. Now, the person who is being spoofed has basically no control over this. I've had many people with good intentions contact me over the years who received such spoofed messages, say things like, oh my gosh, you've been hacked. You need to change your password right away. However, a spoofed message that is associating someone's name 
to an email address that the spoofed person does not actually use or has nothing to do with um, does not involve a compromised password. In this type of situation, it's nothing I nor anyone else who has gotten impersonated could have prevented. Now, it's true, many emails have been compromised when their passwords were discovered or databases of passwords breached, and then they those type were then often used for phishing. But that's a different type of phishing um, scam. So there are many different types of phishing scams, and it seems increasing instances where the phishing crooks like to be able to just assign the name of someone that their targets should know to a completely different type of email address that, you know, the the spoofed person has no idea even exists. Uh, so here's my tip. Never rely on the name that is shown associated with an email you receive. Always verify the email address. And if you're unsure, then contact the proclaimed sender to check, as my friend did here. You know, it's better safe than sorry. Be aware of this before clicking on a link or opening an attachment or calling someone to give them sensitive personal information um, in an email that appears to be from someone you know and trust. Now to a topic I am so excited to discuss today. Today will be the sixth episode in my series of shows covering elections and voting systems security. The last one I did was on October 23rd of 2018, so it's been several months now. So now is the perfect time to do another in this series, especially given all of the things that have been going on here lately related to voting and uh, hacking um, news and so on. On March 24th of 2019, the Mueller report was finished and presented to the Department of Justice. And in my last show that first aired on April 30th, I briefly covered two of the ways that data was stolen from the DCCC and the DNC through the use of phishing attacks and malware. But there is so much more in that massive 448-page report about cybersecurity that needs to be discussed. Robert Mueller's report includes a large portion and large amount of really important points and findings, not only about intelligence operations against the United States and our elections processes and voting systems and machines, but it also points out many information and cybersecurity vulnerabilities and threats that leaders in all countries, really, all countries, U.S. and beyond, need to address. So all leaders should be concerned about all the many different cybersecurity issues involved with voting and elections. With regard to hacking into specific voting and elections systems on 
April 18th of 2019, there was a New York Times headline that stated, quote, Russians breached Florida County computers before the 2016 election, Mueller report says, end quote. What was interesting was some Republican lawmakers vehemently denied that had ever happened, but their denials were not only proven wrong by the Mueller report evidence, but an April 26, 2019 New York Times article quoted Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida in an interview on April 26, who disagreed with those in his party who made such denials. And he took it even one step further by saying, quote, that Russian hackers not only accessed a Florida voting system, but were in a position to change voter roll data, end quote. So pretty concerning stuff. Well, today I am thrilled to have back as my guest Christopher Burgess, a writer, speaker, and commentator on security issues. Christopher is a former senior security advisor to Cisco, and Christopher served over 30 years within the CIA, which awarded him the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal upon his retirement. Christopher also co-authored the book, Secrets Stolen, Fortunes Lost, Preventing Intellectual Property Theft and Economic Espionage in the 21st Century. Christopher, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. It's my pleasure, Rebecca, and thank you for having me back. Well, I've got to have you back to talk about this because anyone who is in the CIA for over 30 years, you've been dealing with so much of this with intelligence gathering throughout your career. And, you know, when it comes to intelligence gathering just in general, I mean, that's not unique to one country. I mean, the U.S., China, Russia, and most other countries do surveillance, right? Uh, that's correct. I believe uh, you, you would be safe to say that every country has an intelligence interest of some uh, way, shape, or form. Uh, the size of that, uh, their capabilities will differ. Right, right. Well, historically, what has the U.S., and Russia and China, and I have many listeners from, you know, all, all three of those countries, in addition to uh, 60 other countries beyond that, what have they done in the past that all countries, if, if you can call it this, pretty much ex- did that was expected and accepted as surveillance activities? Sure. Uh, so when we talk about surveillance activities, uh, the... John Q. Public, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, the police surveillance type of arrangement. But I think in the context you're using it is uh, watching what other countries do so that you can make good decisions for your own country. Every country has its own interests. And thus, embassies exist not only to uh, conduct uh political discussions and bilateral discussions, but also to report on what's going on in the country in which the embassy is located. And so you will find that in most embassies, there are officers there that do political affairs reporting. Uh, 
And they tend to focus on what's available publicly and what they can acquire through overt conversation with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the President's Office, etc. Intelligence, on the other hand, tends to focus on that which is not available publicly or from overt conversation. And so you might think of that as trying to understand the plans and intentions of another country as it might pertain to yourself or your allies. An example, two countries in Africa, side by side, are more interested in what each other is doing than they are interested in perhaps what Russia, China, and the U.S. is doing. Right, right. So um, before then, the 2016 U.S. elections, you know, what you were describing, it was it sounds more like a defensive and being prepared type of activity. But before the 2016 U.S. elections, did countries try to actively change the results of another country's elections or otherwise disrupt elections? Since uh, the beginning of time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's a long history of putting their finger in the politics of others. Uh, there, there's a famous phrase that uh, was bouncing around during my uh, my youth uh, when I was posted to South Asia, and it came out of uh, the government of Indira Gandhi at the time. And it was always about the foreign hand. You know, what is the foreign hand doing here to uh, undermine my elections or undermine my political well-being? And you, you, the, the headlines would show a hand, right? It was the foreign hand. And the political cartoons always had the foreign hand. So it's always been there. In the 50s and the 60s, history will show that the Cold War accentuated this, as did the advent of television, radio, etc., that it became more well-known, it became more uh, obvious, and uh, the divide, the, the placement of leaders in different countries was attempted by the U.S., China, and Russia with regularity throughout the, the world, Africa, Europe, and uh, Latin America. So did they try to actually, I know they do like a a misinformation or some other type of, you know, tactics throughout history, but did they actually back then before we had the internet and uh, computerized voting, did they try to actually change the voting results then through, you know, direct access to the the voting machines and stuff? I wouldn't say say that they would change the, the voting per se, But uh, they might uh, orchestrate a coup and just remove somebody from power and put somebody else in. Uh, The U.S. had a history of that, and that became uh, uh, cannon fodder, if you will, during the the church hearings of 1976, where the U.S. made a concerted uh, decision that this will stop, the covert action of this type will stop. And prior to that, uh, you'll, you'll have seen the U.S. hand in Iran. You'll have seen the U.K.'s hand in Iraq. You'll have seen the Russian hand in uh, Somalia and elsewhere in uh, Africa, China in Indonesia. So, yes, they were always there trying to influence and trying to uh, position themselves as the preferred partner for mm-hmm. the governments that came in because uh, it's it, to, to say it's the global game, that was the Cold War. It was communism versus democracy, and it was on full bore. So they were trying to either, you know, like you said, supporting coups or also 
um, having the information or misinformation types of tactics. But, you know, now that that Russia has been determined by multiple U.S. intelligence agencies and and some other countries, actually, that they have actively tried to hack into U.S. voting systems themselves and disrupt um, disrupt elections through weaponizing, you know, emails that that have been stolen and going beyond these other long time practices, which of course were not possible back <laughs> long ago. But um, do you see then more hacking and more types of, of uh, intrusion into networks and voting machines becoming the norm for countries going forward then? Well, let's speak about Russia. Russia has been doing this for a long time. Uh, they they have primarily been doing it since the revolution of 1917 internally. If you go back and you look at the various elections that occurred in Russia from 1917 to 1990 and beyond, you'll see that uh, you know 90% of the population uh, participates and 89% voted for the candidate of choice. All right, that yeah. that's that's stuffing the ballot box. Uh, it, it happened. What makes 2016 somewhat unique as compared to prior years is the systemic, systematic, excuse me, means by which they were using cyber. Uh, the U.S. had sources within the Russian apparatus which was providing confirmatory information and technical analysis and collection on what the Russians were doing. I don't know if you remember the name Reality Winner, but Reality oh, yeah. Winner was a contractor within the NSA. And she compromised one of those programs, which was actively engaged in determining the sources and methods being used by the Russians against the U.S. and other uh, countries such as France and Germany. Tragic, as so many believe her to be a whistleblower, her release of this information to, uh, I believe it was The Intercept, uh, confirmed to the Russians what we knew, and thus she single-handedly set the U.S. back on its ability to infiltrate, uh, compromise, and get ahead of what the Russians were trying to do. Now, for our listeners who may not know what the Intercept is, um, maybe provide a a brief explanation of that. The Intercept is an online publication that does uh, exposés. A number of their uh, original uh, authors and writers uh, were associated with uh, Snowden and uh, his uh, taking of U.S. information to uh, first China and then to uh, Russia and writing that up. Uh, And since that time, they have... uh, continue to write about a variety of topics and accept information from uh, government sources that uh, should not or perhaps uh, well, it was classified and then they, ma- they made it public. And so they chose to, uh, mm-hmm. in reality, winner's uh, case, they chose to declassify the highly sensitive information which shut down a U.S. program. So as a, a very general type of comparison, there's slightly similar to like a WikiLeaks, only they were more of a of a publication of articles type of... Exactly. Outlet. They view themselves as in, uh, investigative reporters. Ah, okay. So um, I want to get into just the hacking with the situation in 2016, and I want to start with the spear phishing. Um, 
we're going to have a, a break coming up in, our, in about three minutes, but I think this will be a good opportunity for me to, to set up what I want us to focus on then. And basically in the Mueller report, and Christopher, I'm sure you've probably read that, if not skimmed it. I've, I've pretty much skimmed certain uh, sections, but I haven't read every single page in detail yet. <laughs> but I was so interested in finding about the cybersecurity aspect. So on page 21 or page 51 of the report, it, it talked about this, quote, Unit 74455 also sent spear phishing uh, emails to public officials involved in election administration and personnel at companies involved in voting technology. In August 2016, GRU officers targeted employees of Redacted. Uh, when I say that, the info for my listeners means that it was just a black mark there in the report. Um, a voting technology company that developed software used by numerous U.S. countries to manage voter roles and and installed malware on the company network. Um, And then to just uh, kind of paraphrase, they sent spear phishing emails to over 120 email accounts used by the Florida county officials responsible for administering Uh, The election and those emails contained attachments, Word documents that had malicious software within them or Trojans, and they permitted the GRU to access the infected computer. So this section of the report provides um, a lot of information about a very specific cybersecurity uh, tactic. Um, So first, before we go to break, Maybe, uh, Christopher, can you uh, describe in maybe a minute or two what, what is the GRU, basically? So, so the GRU is the uh, Russian Military Intelligence Directorate. That's uh, the GRU are the, the Russian initials for that. And that is the Russian Military Intelligence. It answers to the Ministry of Defense uh, and not to the president. Uh, that would be the uh, internal security oh. would be the FSB. And the external intelligence would be the SVR. Uh, before uh, the Soviet Union collapse, it was the GRU and the KGB. Mm, okay, very interesting. Well, um, it's interesting when you said that they did not report to the president. That's interesting. No, the, the GRU reports to the Ministry of Defense. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and we're right up. For many years, uh, mostly focused on science and technology collection. And for pre-1992 reorg, they had one of the largest contingents of foreign uh, of officers assigned abroad at any given time. Wow. Well, let's take a quick break here and we will hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Christopher Burgess, a 30-plus year veteran of the CIA and an information security expert, uh, and we'll come back to pick up on this, um, this conversation after the break. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as provide topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, also through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors.
it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Christopher Burgess, a 30-plus year veteran of the CIA and also an information security expert. And we're talking about the cybersecurity issues of the Mueller report and also of um, just in general efforts throughout history to interrupt um, our voting in election. That's what we talked about in the first part of the, the show. But now we're getting into the specifics of hacking into the actual voting machines and, and election systems and what actually went on and how we can look at different parts of the Mueller report to learn from that. So before we left, I pointed to a passage on page 51 about um, the spear phishing that had been uncovered and Christopher described what the GRU is. So Christopher has the GRU, you you talked about them before we went to break, how they um, were related to the KGB or um, have they, has the GRU been in, in existence for a long time? I mean, I guess the, the GRU is an, uh, an organization that was is separate from the KGB and mm. is and the KGB is now defunct. It was divided into two, and that is the FSB, which is their internal security service, analogous to the FBI, and the SVR, which is analogous to the CIA. So the GRU has always stood by itself. Prior to uh, 1992, uh, where you, you would consider this the current iteration of the GRU, uh, their focus was mainly on science, technology, and collection. Think of them as the tech transfer arm 
for uh, the Soviet Union. Post-Soviet Union, mm. they've been focused largely on SIGINT and cyber, and they have a large uh, number of uh, officers assigned abroad. Uh, the wet operation of Skirpal uh, that uh, was attempted murder in the UK was handled by the GRU. Wow. So, you know, I, I need to ask you this. You may not be able to answer due to confidentiality, <laughs> but I know that my listeners are probably wondering. So you were at the CIA for over 30 years. Did anything that you did, I mean, did, did any of your work involve the GRU or is that something that you cannot talk about? <laughs> uh, I, I can say that uh, they were a uh, worthy adversary. Uh, for uh, almost all of my career. And okay. uh, that will have to suffice for right now. Okay. Well, that, that, that's very good. I just, want, I just knew some of my listeners would be wondering about that. So I was compelled. Of course, I am wondering about that too. But, um, so I do want to ask, in that passage from page 51 of the Mueller Report, it referenced Unit 74455. Sounds very intriguing. What is Unit 74455, and what's, what's the purpose and goals? Uh, unit 74455, uh, like uh, many uh, units within the Russian intelligence, they have military uh, numeric indicators. They're involved in signals intelligence and cyber operations. Uh, their ah. goals are they will, uh, they will advance whatever uh, their directive is co- coming from above. In uh, well, this instance... Uh, they were involved in the penetration of the DNC and the U.S. election uh, information. Okay. Well, and then in that passage, it talked about them being involved with um, sending out the phishing, spear phishing emails to the voting uh, election officials, too. So I thought that was very interesting as well. So. Targeting elections officials and those involved with voting technology, that that seems to clearly establish that Russia was pursuing ways to at least learn more about U.S. voting systems and machines and maybe at worst to find ways to infiltrate uh, such systems and machines. So I know you, you talked about prior efforts that involved you know, things that were not cyber. Sure. But are you aware of before the 2016 elections of Russia or any other country for that matter, actually trying to um, to target computing systems and actually get into them? Uh, computing systems associated with elections. And that's a pretty broad topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to narrow it down a little bit and put them into two camps. Uh, The first is uh, election officials and their systems, that's the voter rolls, that's the registration, that sort of thing. That's what we're talking about happened in Florida. Um, In December 2015, January 2016, over 4,000 election officials, candidates, and both parties, the Republican and the Democrats, were warned by the FBI and DHS that the Russians were targeting them. So that that predates uh, the discoveries that would come in the the future months, that this warning went out. in, since 1984, we have documented re, uh, 
instances of Russia attempting to influence elections and the results within Mm -hmm. the U.S. Now, focusing on election machines per se, I have zero evidence that the, the voting machines themselves were targeted. What I do have is scraping the voter rolls, then using that information uh, to uh, marry it up with social network information, allowed their disinformation folks to target messaging. Think of it as the big picture. They were trying to uh, foment discord within the U.S. election process. Mm-hmm. Originally, when the penetration was made in the DNC, it was projected to the public that it was a singular lone wolf called Guccifer 2.0. Now, we now know that Guccifer 2.0 was a part of the GRU apparatus, and one of the first things they published, having stolen from the DNC, was the December 2015 200-plus page dossier on then-candidate and, and just primary candidate, because he hadn't advanced yet through, mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And they also captured all of the planning documents for when Clinton became president, and who would she be putting in her political appointees. And so it, 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 the, the targeting of election systems is far more than just the, the ballots uh, machines themselves. It's, right. it's who are the information, who are the influencers, who are the donors, take that information, now marry it up with other information, now you know who to target for your messaging. Right. Does so that make have, sense to you? Yeah, so basically okay. you have influencing, yes. which means you aren't touching the, the votes, you aren't touching the voting systems or machines, you have influencing, then you have the actual trying to get to the voting systems and uh, the election records themselves. Those are kind of two different different types of absolutely, parties. absolutely. And using that uh, those those voter rolls and using the social networks and using political organizations that are identified in the uh, donors and in the PACs. Uh, you 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 see them on this, the same day. The Russians were attempting to have two separate uh, rallies in proximity to one another, so that they would go at it. And and so it, mm. it truly was to foment discord, as opposed mm-hmm. to change balance. Right. Okay. So. Here's another question, because we've been talking about how Russia has been trying to do this. Now, I mentioned that I have s- several uh, of my listeners. I think my sixth most largest um, population of listeners is out of Russia. And I actually had one of them, uh, one of my listeners from Russia, send me a message last after my show last week. So last week I just touched upon, you know, a couple of the cybersecurity issues and they mentioned to me, you know, well, USA has been targeting Russian voting and elections machines and systems of other countries. So I guess I want to broaden that statement and ask you a question. And again, I realize you may not be able to answer this (laughs) due to confidentiality and having it be top secret and so on. Uh, 
But since you've been in the CIA for over 30 years, or you were in the CIA over 30 years, I'm curious to know, and I know my listeners are as well, then has the U.S. targeted voting systems and election machines and systems of other countries? Don't know. So I don't know that the U.S. has ever targeted voting machines and election systems. I do know that through public diplomacy, as well as Radio Free Europe, Voice of America, etc., that the U.S. has attempted to influence the election outcomes of many countries. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think with what happened in 2016, and now we're getting ready for 2020, do you think there's going to be a change in how different countries target each other uh, based on what has occurred in the last couple of elections? I, I cannot see the United States changing its its uh, ways uh, because it would be counter to the basic tenets of democracy. Mm. Uh, I do see where changes might be made to ensure that elections are more transparent, that elections uh, are, uh, that a vote can be tracked from the voter to the ballot box, to the tally, and mm-hmm. to be verified in every step of the way. Those are the changes that I think I think we will see coming so that we can reduce on a global basis the opportunity for corruption as well as ballot stuffing, uh, et cetera. You know, you remember here in the U.S., Tammany Hall was famous for having the dead vote three times. Yeah, yeah, but that has not happened. Just to to make clear, we have not had that type of election fraud in uh, since uh, the last what? How many elections? Well, it, so it, it, exactly, but making elections transparent and yes. technologically visible, I think, is the key. Yes, and auditable, so you can verify, right? So absolutely. So I want to ask you about something that I found interesting Um, in the New York Times. uh, It's one of the publications I read regularly, among many others. But in the April 16th issue of the New York Times, they reported uh, that from the Mueller report, um, they reported that Senator Marco Rubio of Florida uh, went beyond what the Mueller report said about Russia targeting voting systems, and Rubio said that Russian hackers not only accessed a Florida voting system, but were in a position to change voter roll data. And Rubio said in the interview that there was, in fact, an intrusion, but the target or targets were never notified. And so certainly... Well, that caused quite a, it went on. Anybody listening, go out there and you can look at that issue of the New York Times, find it online. But um, what do you think? I'm sure you read uh, that article from him or at least about that uh, statement of his. What do you think of what Senator Rubio said with regard to his statements about, um, you know, security officials in that statement, he said they chose to just give a general statement instead of contacting specific victims of the intrusion. The, um, the government has a requirement that's called duty to inform. And mm-hmm. th- since my time in government as well as post-government, I've always advocated that national security officials 
should share all information available, which will not cause their sources or methods to be compromised in the sharing. Mm-hmm. And thus, uh, I would agree with Rubio, if he was correct, that an individual that was being targeted or a system that was being targeted was not informed they were being targeted. The state of Illinois system was targeted. It was uh, compromised. They were informed it was happening. Same thing with other states. The 21 states that were compromised by the Russians, their election officials were all informed. It, they, they didn't well, learn I, about it through the newspaper. Okay, okay. Well, recently, and I'm trying to remember if it was on, uh, I forget the news outlet, I'll have to look it up, but I had read in one of the, the major publications, they said that now they determined all 50 state uh, election systems were targeted, so... I mean, I would assume that they would target all 50. I believe uh, my information now, mind you, my information is coming from 2018, is that it was 21 states that were confirmed. Mm. And by confirmation, I mean, there are are fingerprints on the door, right? (laughs) Yeah, they have digital tracks that they've left behind. Exactly. Yeah. But we don't choose who gets targeted. The Russians choose that. Or other con- countries, if Absolutely. they're participating Absolutely. in that, too. So, um, you know, it seemed like the state elections officials have been somewhat, well, they've been overly, or I don't want to say overly, they've been very defensive about, you know, no, we we have good systems, they're, they're secure, don't worry about it. But um, I don't know. It, I know that in the federalist uh, federalist system, every state's responsible for their own elections. But on the other hand, it seems like it is a um, it is a national security issue uh, when you know how they're doing things. And I don't know. It just seems like if each state is not held to some minimum security standard, it it's putting the nation at risk. I mean, what do you think about strict federalism for our national elections with regard to um, cybersecurity that needs to be in place for all of those different systems? I, I, I note that you use the word national elections because many states push the, uh, the election uh, choices on how elections will be handled down to the local level. Mm-hmm. And so for national elections, I think it's wrongheaded, the strict federalism. We need a standard, and then we need to fund the standard at all levels. We really need to have the same standard at the local level that we have at the uh, state and federal level. The current default to do whatever local jurisdiction wishes is, is truly a recipe for disaster. And uh, there, there's there's a couple reasons why. And uh, the first of the reason is expertise. Mm-hmm. These individuals are experts on elections. They are not cybersecurity experts. However, elections are going up to electronic means, remote voting, etc. And if, if you don't have the expertise to protect the avenue by which you are conducting your election, then you are asking for your election to be corrupted. Yes. I mean, it, it seems like a huge vulnerability and then add on to that, the, the voting and election systems and applications and hardware vendors themselves, you know, you and I have worked with a lot of different types of 
lots of uh, applications and and systems vendors over the years, I'm sure. And I I worry because I always find holes in the systems when I do audits and risk assessments. With regard to these vendors who are providing the software and hardware that are used in elections, what accountability do you do they have for the weaknesses that have been widely reported? And there have been many reports about, you know, old systems still being used that, you know, use the same password over and over again and all the systems and, and so many other examples. Orange County, California, for example, was trying to keep their voting machines alive by going to eBay to buy the spare parts. Okay, I, I think that yep. that 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 is uh, a a an example of how uh, broken we are um, on the cybersecurity requirements side. Uh, I'm going to go back to what I just said. There are only so many experts available. Mm-hmm. Every county can't afford one, but the nation can afford them all. And and so we absolutely have the brain power to make the voting system secure, to put standards and requirements for a minimum level of security for any machine that or system that is going to be attached to our voting. We, mm-hmm. we have the capability if we centralize it. It is when we bifurcate it into uh, a thousand different pieces because every county gets to choose their own that what we're doing in, in doing so is no longer do we have strength in numbers and knowledge. We're... We're all we're creating little fiefdoms of knowledge that may or may not be uh, astute. Well, yes, and you know, <laughs> very true. And you know, Christopher, I've asked. I mean, I've asked half a dozen voting and election systems vendors, reps, or and engineers to come on to the show and actually answer some questions. And I told them, you know. I, yeah, I'll be fair with you. I just want some straight answers. And if you can't tell it because it's confidential, don't tell. None of them have agreed to come on and talk with me. And, you know, I'm not that um, I'm not mean when I'm asking questions. So it's like it's frustrating. No, I've noticed that. I've noticed that. But I'm going to tell you about one system. And it's okay. a system I happen to see because I live in King County in Washington State. Okay. Voting is by mail. One hundred percent. Paper copies with the ability for the voter to track their vote through the entire process. Uh A model means to attack the issue. So we, you rip off your tab, you throw your, uh, your vote into the envelope, you drop it off at a ballot uh, pickup station, or you can mail it postage prepaid and you can watch your vote walk through the system all the way to acceptance being counted, now being tallied. And to me, that's just tremendous transparency from a voter perspective. Oh, yeah. So you don't, you eliminate the polling place and the polling booth and all those other um, vulnerability points. You eliminate the the voting machine and there's a paper Mm -hmm. record of each individual's vote available for audit. So then the main thing you need to secure are the humans handling the ballots and whatever the centralized ballot reader. And I'm I'm assuming those ballots are put into a machine to automatically tally. They are. Okay. 
They are. And so when you have service providers providing voting machines that can't spell security, even if you spot them five letters, then one should have very low confidence in that equipment provider. Yes. Well, do you know how many different voting systems uh, are used throughout the U.S.? I know I've been trying to find that. I I know of at least a couple of dozen. but I do not have that number. Yeah, it it would be kind of fun to, to look at that. Well, um, what, I guess, oh, it looks like we're getting here close to the end already. Well, I had so many other questions I wanted to, to ask uh, you about, but you've given so much great information. I guess for the last question for today, for all of our listeners worldwide, um, what's a key point you want to make today about Russian hacking against elections or just any nation state hacking against elections and voting systems uh, to disrupt U.S. elections or any other country's elections. And and what do you want our listeners to take away from our conversation today about cybersecurity and elections? Public information is public. Your private information that you share publicly is feeding the beast, if you will. And the beast is any adversary you want. They have that scraping capability. And then with that scraping information, they can then devise means by which they can penetrate and harvest more. The DNC was harvested in 2016. But that harvesting was going on before then. Uh, Similarly, you want to make sure that you don't click that, if there's just one thing that a listener could take away is that if you receive that phishing email like you described in your opener that uh, spoofed you, learn how to check headers, put in place communication protocols so that anomalies are easily discerned within the voting offices of each county so that they understand how to check and know that this is something that was originated by you or by a colleague. That's That would be my uh, my closing on that. Well, that's a great one, and it highlights the, the, the extreme importance of the human factor within the cybersecurity environment. <laughs> we always need better, higher uh, awareness in all of our people who are using our systems. So, um, well, thank you so much today for being a guest on my show and discussing this important topic, and I'm looking forward to having you back again sometime. Maybe after the election, uh, we can... We can dissect some of that, uh, depending upon what happens between now and November. (laughs) That would be great. So today I've been speaking with uh, Christopher Burgess, a 30-plus year veteran of the CIA and also an information security expert. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? And did you find the information that we provided helpful? Please let me know. And if you have another topic to suggest I cover, just send that to me at my email, which is RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, then you will be able to listen to the recordings. And you can find the recordings of all my past shows, all 63 of them, on iTunes, MobilePlay, Stitcher.com, TuneIn, uh, Player FM, and of course, go to VoiceAmerica.com business channel website and get in touch with me if you need anything else with regard to information security, privacy, or compliance. 
So I urge all of you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities and and when you go to your job and do your daily work or whenever you encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and who you work for, are they doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them? Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.